You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. John Winter, it's good to see you again, my friend. It's good to see you. Uh, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, meaningoflife.tv, bloggingheads.tv, uh, available on uh, streaming video and audio podcast. I'm here once again with uh, John Winter, uh, also known to us over at the Electrogora as EJ. Uh, John, of course, is uh, one of our core, uh, uh, part of our core stable of writers, um, writes on a really interesting variety of topics. Uh, he and I share, interestingly, despite the fact that we are somewhat, we are of different generations, we share a lot of common interests. We did an entire dialogue on punk rock, which is a common love of ours and uh, which I really enjoyed doing. Um, uh, today, John, we're going to talk about postmodernism. Um, and the way we're going to talk about it is we're going to talk about your personal experience uh, coming up through an academic PhD program in English, what you saw happening, the changes you saw occurring in terms uh, uh, coming in terms of um, uh, how uh, scholar English scholars were pursuing uh, their inquiries, um, and then you want to also you want to disambiguate what happened in English um, from what you think really postmodern. Uh, fully understood consists of, and then maybe we'll also talk about uh, it as it's manifesting in philosophy. Um, so does that sound all right to you? That sounds like a good uh, way to start, yeah, sure. Okay. So, John, why don't you first of all start with, with give us a sense of the time period and of your experience when you initially went into an academic uh, doctoral program in English and maybe start a little earlier than that because I, I gather you had a, you got a master's degree as well. So tell us the relevant biogra- biographical story of you going into academic English and then tell us about what you saw happening uh, in terms of the entry into, into that universe of postmodern ideas. Yeah, I actually didn't com- – I, I completed my master's work. I, I didn't – didn't get the degree because it was quite a bit of a blow-up. Uh, the bachelor's program was at SUNY Brockport, and SUNY Brockport's English program at that point was fairly conservative and, and new critical-based. Uh, and uh, initially, I wanted to do a creative writing thesis that didn't you know, pan out. Uh, I then wanted to do an, uh, a thesis on uh, Dylan Thomas, who I find a fascinating poet. Uh, and, and I was told, you know, I had completed the thesis, and I was told, you know, Dylan Thomas is not a major poet. So of the 20th century, so you sort of wasted your time. <laughs> you were told and, that by a professor? Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I um, wrote uh, a theoretical piece, you know, defending my reading of, of Thomas. And what I did not have the chops. I had studied philosophy and bits and pieces in undergraduate school. I read a lot of Thomas Aquinas. I started reading Heidegger. Um, but I hadn't really read, you know, philosophy systematically. So I basically came up with an epistemology of, of reading poetry that was, later I found out, pretty uh, consistent with pragmatist uh, theories. But I didn't know that. And uh, it was a uh, it was a really that got me into the doctoral program at SUNY Albany, uh, where things were very different than the SUNY Brockport. Um, 
were, uh, it was primarily at that time trying to transition to a composition theory specialty. Uh, and there were a number of Marxists, uh, there were a number of radical feminists. Uh, there was uh, one uh, deconstructionist, uh, and there were uh, a number of pragmatists, uh, as well as a number of traditional uh, literaturists. So hold on there for one hold on there for one second because I want to be clear about the timeline and get a sense of how the landscape changed. So you, when you were in the master's program, did I hear you correctly say that it was a program that was largely dominated by the uh, the theory of the new critics, i.e., yeah. the, the T.S. Eliot model of? Can yeah, you say was, for a minute what that is, because people in the audience may not know what that is. A uh, new critics, uh, new criticism was developed back in the, uh, from the turn of the century to the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, it was a practice of close reading. Uh, the, the initial impulse behind it was to bring the romantic poets into the literary canon. Uh, because they, in the 19th century, they had been kind of banned as atheists and radicals. Um, and initially it was, it was, initially it was very left-leaning, but, uh, they, you know, they did make use of certain understandings of how we read text per se. They had established, uh, rhetoric, they had, uh, established, uh, uh, critical criteria. Uh, the big thing about them that I think ended up irking a lot of people by the 1970s uh, was that they kept uh, saying that there was a message to the poem. We were supposed to read the poem. It was, by message, I don't mean that they weren't looking at the poem as a didactic piece. But what they were looking at the poem was as a product of a genius. So, in other words, the, the poem was coming out with a special intelligence and the special intelligence, therefore, if it was properly interpreted, by a close reading of the text. Uh, in other words, you weren't supposed to look at the whole thing, you know, until you had put the lines together, so to speak. Uh, and by reading the lines very carefully individually, you would extract what this intelligence, this inspired intelligence was actually communicating to the world about, you know, the deeper feelings of life, uh, essentially. Yeah, and, and, and it... it... You know, this also there there was a, a period in aesthetics and philosophy in the in the in the mid twentieth century which was very new critical in terms of its orientation. I'm thinking about uh, Monroe Beardsley and William Wimsatt had a very famous paper on an anti intentionalist paper. And from what I understand, that one of the things about the new critics was that they eschewed both biographical and psychological sort of. It, it was it was a form. It was a theory that was supposed to go along with sort of modernist. With modernist uh, art, am I am I wrong about that? I've always associated with T. S. Eliot, and I didn't realize it went back as far as you suggested. Yeah, it uh, it, it was it was a, a modernist literary uh, critical practice. And how uh, did something much. that you decri- described originally as leftist come to be so heavily identified with T. S. Eliot, which is ex- who's exactly the opposite, sort of of a leftist? Um, did it uh, did it begin politically and then got sort of depoliticized as it became more modernist or 
Yeah, it, it eventually became depoliticized, um, and I think there was a growing concern in the uh, 60s um, that that new literary trends were threatening the tradition, but not only the tradition of, the liter of new critical readings, but the tradi tradition of English literature. Uh, you know, because there was a... The, the, I think the main, I would say the thing that caused them, the, uh, caused the new critics the worst palpitation, so to speak, were, was probably the appearance of the beat poets. The beat and poets. And what happened in their following. Yeah. Uh, beat poets were, were rowdy, linguistically rowdy, as well as, uh, um, you know, I mean, they're not... They're not amenable to the kind of message in the text that I think the new critics were looking for. Yeah. They're pretty overt about what their message is. No. Yeah. So, okay, so now we're at the point to where you, you enter into the, the PhD program at Albany. And when is that around? That's, uh, yeah, the whole master's to uh, doctorate program, uh, 80s, I want to say 86 to 90. Like, I, I got the... Uh, doctorate in 1990, so it was 80, 85, 85 to 90. And was the was the new critical focus of your master's program already anachronistic at that point, sort of a, the last gasp or something, or was that still sort of contested territory at that time? No, I, I think the, at Brockport at the time, I don't think they were aware. I think it was, it was already archaic by that time. Yeah. I mean, the major things that I bumped into at SUNY Albany, Marxism, post-Marxism, <clears throat> feminism, radical feminism of one kind or another, um, Freudian interpretations, Jungian interpretations, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, that, that hadn't happened at, at uh, Rockport yet. By post-Marxist, do you mean Frankfurt School or do you mean something else by post-Marxist? Uh, post-Marxist, by that time, was already Jameson, Frederick Jameson. Mm, okay. Frederick Jameson is uh, as so I could uh, getting ahead a little ahead of ourselves. Frederick James is a major critic of postmodernism uh, because obviously he he believes in a Marxist narrative. He just thinks the Marxist narrative has to be kind of rewritten as history goes along because the nature of capital has changed mm. considerably in the past uh, fifty years. So it's uh, not it's a, it's a separate branch from I I always think of the Frankfurt School as sort of the the, rep the replacement of some of the purely economic dimensions of Marxism with sort of this idea of cultural capital and stuff, and thus it seems sort of obviously amenable to application to arts, right? Um, but I don't know whether what you're talking about now is yet another sort of post-Marxist trend, or is it part of the Frankfurt, is it an extension yeah. of the Frankfurt School? Post-Marxist theory um, actually has its roots in, in the... Uh, in, um Louis Althusser. Ah, okay. Uh, who was as you know, I, um, had some mental issues towards the end, but in any event, uh, and Althusser was deeply concerned with the fact that there was a uh, humanistic element, a humanistic narrative in the early Marx text of Marx and Engels that disappears by the time Marx writes *Das Capital* and. Uh, that changes the nature of 
narrative considerably so that, it, you know, in the humanistic narrative, it's all about, you know, getting the proletariat to a point where they can find happiness, pleasure, you know, uh, self-fulfillment, particularly self-fulfillment, uh, true subjectivity. Whereas if it's, you take the humanistic element out of that by the time you get to the Dallas Capitol, suddenly you're really talking about a, a uh, socialist machine uh, where everybody's going to find their place. Does that actually produce happiness or true subjectivity? Maybe not anymore. Gotcha. No, it's just another end of history, so okay. to speak. And so, okay. that, that, so the narrative, the whole idea of the Marxist narrative, uh, and especially in France, um, really unravels because of the events of, of 1968, the student rebellion. Uh, and let me, let me explain something about that. that the, because that had, it had enormous impact on French philosophy and theory of the 70s and 80s. Uh, the students were, the student rebellions were very ideologically um, pure in terms of where they were taking all the ideas of that now was a time for world revolution and so forth. You know, they thought, uh, for instance, that the Cultural Revolution in China was indication that, you know, everybody was going to rise up and, and the world was going to become new. That's always the promise of revolution, right? The world becomes new. So they thought the world was going to become new. And so being ideologically pure Marxists, they assumed that they would go to the labor unions and, you know, chat them up, get them to the barricades. Hey, it's time. This is the time. Well, as a matter of fact, the Communist Party in France at the time was a standard political party. And, you know, it was not interested in revolution. It was interested in getting elected. And uh, so the labor unions, you know, were not, were just interested in better wages, better working conditions, and so on and so forth. The, the, they were not interested, you know, they were totally cut off from from what was happening in Eastern Europe, let alone China. Uh, so it was a major disappointment to find that the, you know, that even the Communist parties of uh, France were saying, put down this rebellion, you know, be quiet, and so on and so forth. So it disappointed a lot of people. A lot of academics, not just students, but uh, professors who were involved in this, and they had to end up rethinking uh, what it meant, what Marx meant, in a sense, what the Marxist narrative meant, because clearly something had gone wrong with the story. Uh, and so you have a lot of, uh, Althusser is the main example because he remained Marxist, but you had a lot of uh, Marxists, uh, French Marxists who say, you know, I don't want to do this anymore like Foucault, like Derrida, uh, like Baudrillard. Um, uh, and they begin unraveling the narrative structure, so to speak, of not only of Marxism, but of modernity itself, uh, of modernity's literature. And that's, uh, you know, it, I think there's a fundamental difference between post-structuralism Derrida and Foucault, for instance, and postmodernism, uh, even postmodernist theories like Baudrillard or Leotard, uh, because in many ways, post-structuralism is still a way to 
to try to keep alive the dialogue of modernity, whereas postmodernism is saying that that dialogue is over. All right, so I'm sort of really getting ahead of ourselves here. Yeah, but no, but this is very interesting. You're painting such interesting uh, landscapes, and it just keeps raising so many interesting questions, so I don't mind that we bounce around a little bit. You know, one of the things I want to ask you about, what you just described them in France with the sort of the disappointment when the student activists found out that, that labor was not interested uh, in what they were doing. I mean, there was, again, obviously a very similar thing happened in the U.S. I mean, and that's the point at which, that's the point at which the Democratic Party and the left wing in the United States experienced this split because traditional, but, but here, what I wanted to ask you was in the United States, part of the reason for the estrangement of labor from the student left was because labor actually tended to be somewhat culturally conservative, right? Um, and they weren't interested in the hippies and all the, all the um, <clears throat> foreigners. And, um, you, know, um, you know, I always used to say that, you know, if Archie Bunker had been 30 years earlier, he would have been a Democrat and obviously would have been a Democrat, right? And so it, was there a similar dynamic in Europe, mainly that um, there was also a sort of cultural alienation of labor from the students, right? Um, um, because of the cl- class differences, cultural differences, um, or, or, but what, or was it a very different story of why labor and, and the left split? The, uh, that's one of the reasons there was a difference, and that's one of the reasons why um, trying to make comparisons, you know, occasionally in, in our political debates we talk about socialist governments of Europe and whether they're successes or failures. We're missing one of the basic points, which is that socialism was never uh, demonized in Europe. I mean, you know, uh, in fact, part of the what's going on in Europe before World War II and into World War II is that a lot of people in Europe thought there were only two choices, some form of Marxist socialism, some form of fascism. There was no middle ground in in Europe during before the war, uh, which obviously is not true here. And not only is that not true here, consequently, um, you know, it's possible to be in a labor union and also to have fairly right wing ideas, because it's not uh, you know we don't make that kind of distinction here. Um, and also in terms of cultural differences, uh, yeah, the. Uh, there are similarities between France in 1968 and the United States in 1969, but there are also an awful lot of differences. The Cultural Revolution in the United States, um, you know, took five, ten years, right? I mean, it was a very gradual process that involved uh, all kinds of, you know, people didn't think too much about class. I don't remember people thinking too much about social class. Uh, we were aware that there were rich people. We were aware that there were poor people. We were aware that there were black people. We were aware that there were white people. But, you know, a lot of class and ethnic distinctions didn't really, you know, the, let's take the ethnic distinction, the race issue. It starts off with a bang in the early 60s. And it ends with a bang with the rise of black nationalism in, in the late 60s. But for about three or four years, uh, you know, everybody's dancing, James Brown. You know, I mean, it's... it's uh, people are not thinking a lot about the kinds of class distinctions that make up political dialectics uh, in at the height of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, it's really about Vietnam, primarily about Vietnam, 
uh, and about party. Yeah, and I guess also so about I mean, life and about lifestyle, right? I mean, I mean, the, the, the hippie part, anyway, is a lifestyle revolution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not not all political party, but about party, man. You know. Yeah. Um, and uh, so so that and that 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 had no. Uh, there was nothing like that in in Europe, as I understand it. Uh, there were you know, fairly traditional social gatherings uh, and that took some interesting, you know, developed some interesting innovations, uh, like the original the original skinheads in in England, for instance, were actually working class kids who hung out with Jamaicans. Uh, interesting. And, uh, interesting. So, were some innovations, but there were none of the no Woodstock. There was no Woodstock in, in you know the Isle of Wight. I think it's nineteen seventy. It's it's not Woodstock. It's not the there same is, phenomenon. Yeah, no, that's right. It's the same bands, but it's, <laughs> it doesn't have the same doesn't play the same cultural role. No, that, that's that's very interesting. Okay, so you're in grad. You start graduate school. You you finished what you said was already an archaic and anachronistic program. You walk into this PhD program in Albany. So now tell us a little, a little story about your experiences there, what you saw happening. And maybe that will lead us to you talking to us about what you see as the differences between post-structuralism and post-modernism. Oh, okay. The, the radical theorists in SUNY Albany, uh, who would not be considered too radical today, but they were they were basically former political radicals of the sixties who had found their niche in academia um, and they were actually quite good as scholars and critics uh, they hadn't yet abandoned new criticism per se as a practice model of practice um, but they had a definite idea, which you know, I think is uh, it will probably come up later again uh, because it's, it's, it's fundamentally wrong. Which is that if you can control the academy, uh, you can control where the society is going uh, through, through new teaching methods uh, by teaching from alternative and sometimes radical points of view, um, and that there was some real social power in the academy that was worth fighting for. All right. And this, I, I, I'm, I'm sure this is probably uh, sounding authentic to you <laughs> who, who uh, has to deal with some of this even today, especially, you know, in the, the problems you see in the APA and, and the rise of uh, transgender activism, uh, that, that there's some sense that there's some Focus of power in the academy that has to be claimed, All right? And that created a lot of tensions at SUNY Albany that I remember. Um, and I, I will, it it had an interesting effect for me. I'll, 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 I ran afoul of the radical feminists at SUNY Albany, um, and it was largely over uh, a book. Uh, it was the color purple, which, frankly, I don't think is a very good book. But a very, uh, I mean, a very, I mean, the book for it was ubiquitous. I mean, a very famous book yeah. and very mainstream in the sense that 
it, it was in it was in the mainstream culture, right? I mean, they made a, they made a major film out of it. Right. Um, um, so what was the what was what happened with that book? I didn't like the book. <laughs> oh, you didn't like the book? Okay, well that's that's allowed. Saying, Isn't that allowed? <laughs> I had I had a criticism. I, I said this is a historical. This is you know because uh, uh, Alice Walker uh, distorts historical fact and the historical experience, which you can actually hear. And read that historical experience. You can hear it in the blues and in the jazz of the 20s and 30s. You can hear, read about it in, in poem, poetry that was uh, written back then by, by African Americans. You know, and what Alice Walker writes is simply not true to that historical experience. And in what was, sense, particularly? Uh, everybody, well, the novel ends, if I remember correctly, the novel ends with everybody hugging everybody and everything is all right with the world. Again, or something like that. I can't remember, but the trajectory of these characters' narratives is just not really what 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 uh, what is true to that experience. Uh, from my understanding of, of African American culture of that uh, and appreciation of African American culture of that period, it was a you know it was a it was a rough life, much rougher life than than she depicted. Um, anyway, so I said these these things, and uh, you know, you know that was becoming a important book for for feminists, radical feminists. Why? There's, oh, there's a lesbian relationship in the novel. That's what I was wondering. I mean, was that was that, is that what they were sort of planting their flag on? Was it well? You, you, but you that, that that wasn't the dimension of it that you were criticizing, though, was it? No, no, no. Um, uh, there was there, there was homosexuality in the black communities in in the 1920s and 30s, but it didn't. My understanding, and uh, it didn't not play out uh, the way it plays out in that novel. It, okay. it, it, it's meant to, to, you know, it's meant to. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, uh, it's been years since I read that novel, literally 30 years, or so. I, I really shouldn't talk too much about the novel itself. Um, but uh, I just remember it was sugar-coated history. Uh, and, uh, you know, I pointed that out and, and because that's what they wanted. A number of radical feminist uh, uh, literary critics, not only at SUNY Albany, but, but in major uh, journals and, and newspapers, were, that's what they wanted. They wanted the sugar-coated history. They wanted to an, another version of history that got them to where they could be feel comfortable in in the culture, and while I understand the need to feel comfortable in the culture, you know, I, I think there's a, a healthy way to get to that point and an unhealthy way to get to that point. And certainly, telling, revising, you revise history if you have new evidence. That's when you revise history. You don't revise history by creating evidence. You know what I mean? That's that's the wrong way to revise history. That gets you a false narrative and false expectations and a false sense of reality. So anyway, the, so I ran afoul of, uh, of the radical feminists at SUNY Albany. Uh, and um, fortunately, uh, I chose, because I was uh, becoming more interested in, um, and I guess this had to do with my previous reading of Heidegger, I was becoming more interested in, in post-structuralism and, and Derrida and Paulsman and uh, one of Paulsman's former students was actually Sidney Albany, a 
uh, and uh, I became her teaching assistant. Uh, and she was a wonderful teacher. Her name was uh, Helen uh, Alam, uh, and she was from she was from Argentina, uh, and uh, she was she was a post-structuralist feminist. So they, you know, once once she took me under her wing, I was kind of safe. So I I owe her a lot. I frankly I think I owe her my ability to complete that doctorate. Could you say a little bit about just quickly? what it was that you found appealing and interesting about post-structuralism and by way of that, giving some people in the audience a sense of what post-structuralism is? Okay, well, structuralism... Uh, that's, so su- that's so sewer, right? That's sort of like formal, formal so, linguistics, right? So sewer is uh, was a Swiss linguist uh, who uh, did a lecture in semiology. And semiology is a competing form of competes with Persian semiotics because it's first of all, signs are binary. Uh, you have a lang, which is a system, and you call, for instance, you have English, you have French, you have Germans, these are all langs, right? There are systems, they complete with grammars, dictionaries, and so forth. And then you have parole. Parole is, is, is temporally contingent. It includes slang, can include uh, new formations of grammar. It can include uh, writings. It can, can, can include uh, newspaper reports. You know, it's it's and and when you run that through um, certain anthropological and linguistic theories, you you come up with structuralism, which is that you're looking for the structures of the lang. Not only in terms of language, but also in terms of stories we tell, in terms of images, um, you know, in terms of symbology, uh, symbolic symbology, uh, and all of these will have structures, and the structures will be the key. You're always you're trying to, you know, dig your way through the parole to get to the lang, so to speak. Gotcha. Uh, and the next major figure in structuralism is, is an anthropologist by, and linguist by the name of uh, Levi Strauss. Uh, and uh, he was like a big figure uh, in, in uh, the French Academy for, for about 20 years. Uh, and uh, the word phrase structuralism is actually coined in respect to the work of Levi Strauss, uh, at least in France. Um, and what post-structuralism did, remember after the events of 68, the French theorists had to say, you know, one of the narratives, the big narratives of history right for them in 68 was Marx. Uh, some form of Marxism, might have been Stalinism, might have been Maoism, but with some Trotskyism, whatever, uh, it was some form of Marxism. And, and there's the structure. It seemed to have been working fine. The parole matters, for instance, the minor dictatorships in various Eastern European countries weren't really, uh, they were historically contingent, they had to happen, but, you know, we're moving towards this grand future. Suddenly it's clear we're not moving to that grand future anymore. (laughs) So, what you have is an analysis, first, of Marxism itself, uh, and second of all, of 
modernity because Marxism is one of the major meta-narratives of modernism, right? It's, it's you know, you have Hegelianism, you have Marxism, you have uh, uh, the, the story of the rise of the liberal state and liberal democracies, uh, you have various national meta-narratives of, you know, you know, how America becomes the great, you know, manifest destiny, so on and so forth. And Marxism is one of these great meta-narratives. So, you start having to deal with not only the failure of Marxism, but in a sense the failure, or something's going wrong with modernity. Something is not happening. All these narratives are going wrong somehow. Uh, and, and that's what post-structuralism is. It's an analysis of how modernity uh, fails itself. Uh, and that can be in terms of textual readings. Uh, it can be in terms of metaphysics. Uh, it can be in terms of social uh, uh, social uh, identity, uh, social ontologies. Uh, you know that's why Foucault comes up with his genealogical method, trying to find out where ideas come from. Uh, you know in 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 modernity, and uh, but it's all about it's called post-structuralism because it's kind of unraveling of the, the meta narrative, and it goes back to Heidegger, which is why it's easy to become interested in post-structuralism if you have a reading history in Heidegger, because Heidegger Heidegger has two moments as a philosopher, as we all know, having to do with his stupid affair with Nazism. Uh, and there, and there is the Heidegger before Nazism, who is a brilliant scholar, one of the, one of the great readers of Kant and Hegel. Uh, and there's the uh, Heidegger after his disappointment with Nazism, who becomes, you know, he, he passes through a period where he, he has to separate himself from Nietzsche. Uh, and so there's, uh, he gives a massive lecture against Nietzsche around, the, uh, I think it was 1943. Uh, and then there's finally the post-war Heidegger, who really is not interested in doing traditional scholarly philosophy and says, you know, the, that, that whole jig is up. But what they all share, all these Heideggers share, is a sense that there's a hidden story beneath the story of Western philosophy. And the hidden story is that philosophy is, is always looking for God. Uh, you know, and, and consequently, when it talks about its existence, it is always talking about where the divine is without talking about where the divine is. You know, it's, 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 it's basically blinded to itself. Uh, and so that's why he, the word deconstruction actually comes out of a, 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 an expression of Heidegger's where he says, you know, if we're going to get back to what we, what philosophy was really about with the ancient Greeks, we have to destroy the history of Western metaphysics. 
uh, it doesn't mean about burning books. It means unraveling all these narrative, you know, uh, tanglements uh, that have been dumped onto whatever that was that the ancient Greeks, you know, knew when they experienced, you know, the world around them. So, 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 is, so, is his was his notion basically that <clears throat> the Enlightenment, in a sense, represented. Um, the wrong way of developing beyond the ancient and medieval philosophy. In other, in other words, does he associate this wrong turn that now has to all be undermined with the with the Enlightenment? Because then that that would explain why it's 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 anti modern, right? I mean, um, um, because the Enlightenment is where modernity comes from. Right? I mean, that's that's with its individualism and with all these other sort of you know elements to it. Um, um, is that is that is 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 that his main beef? Is that the Enlightenment kind of misunderstood its predecessors and thus took philosophy sort of in the wrong direction? Well, um, for Heidegger, the Enlightenment, like I say, it is blind to itself. It thinks it is doing epistemology. It's actually doing a kind of ontology, hmm. uh, and the ontology it's doing is an ontology of a, well, it calls it ontotheology because it's, it's an ontology of the human spirit is divinity. Mm. That, uh, it, and this, he's not too far wrong if you read the German idealists, which he had enormous admiration for, not just, uh, Hegel, but Fichte and, and uh, uh, Schelling. Uh, yeah, that, that's they're they're coming very close to saying man is God. Yeah, the, yeah. and that what philosophy is about is about the human spirit realizing itself as being the most powerful, the most knowing of beings. Um, and uh, so he's 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 not too far wrong, uh, but I think that if that's the case. You know, to get back to some basic encounter with the real world around you, which is what he's talking about, you know, in terms of confronting being, um, you know, you know, you're, you're going to have to, you would have to set aside this human divinity, sense of human divinity, somehow. And I think, uh, you know, after he you know, attacks Nietzsche and separates himself from the Nazis, you know, his primary move is in, into reading poetry and saying, you know, the poets are doing this. You know, philosophers are not doing this, poets are doing this. Um, and um, so he, he does, in terms of moving our narrative along, he is preparing the ground for, you know, the post-structuralists are not looking for ancient Greece. They're not looking for a true experience encounter with the world. In fact, they say, you know, you can't do that. Uh, the whole notion that, you know, Derrida or Foucault or Heideggerians is, is misguided because they think Heidegger is wrong to think that you can have this primal experience with, with, with the world. You can't. Everything is going to be mediated by language uh, and signs. Uh, and consequently, what they're... they're unraveling of the narrative is really an unraveling not 
to get somewhere, but simply an unraveling to achieve greater awareness, a certain ironical stance to experience better understanding of how linguistic practices operate not only in the media present, but more importantly in history, because history is always going to be suspect for them. So they share, let me just get this straight, they, sh- they, they take on board sort of the negative dimension of Heidegger, but not the positive dimension of Heidegger. Yes. Because if you, you said Heidegger was contra Nietzsche, yeah. But of course, then you, you also said that the post-structuralist, you know, return to the sort of the genealogical approach precisely because it represents things as sort of being historically contingent in a way that gets you away from any sort of engagement with eternals, you know what I mean? With, with sort of, right. and I guess Heidegger was all about getting back to engagement with eternals, right? Um, um, Okay, that, that that makes it kind of interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, okay, so so now bring this back to how you see how you saw this playing all out. You're you're in the PhD program at Albany, and you're seeing all this play out. How does this play out, particularly in English? Well, the way it played out is that um, with Marxism crumbling into post-Marxism, with radical feminism trying to rewrite the canon of uh, literature, uh, with the rise of Afrocentrism, which was really, I mean, um, I think uh, Henry Louis Gates is a brilliant writer. I've met him. He's a nice guy. But uh, there was a strand, and what he had to say, uh, for instance, in Signifying Monkey is, is, I think, pretty good. But there was a strand of Afrocentrism that was just way off the wall that basically said, Play, you know, Plato actually came from Africa. Everybody knows that. Yeah, remember the, there, there, there was a fight about this in the 90s. Wasn't there a, a book by, was it Mark Bernal, is it Black Athena? And then there was, a, there was a big, huge fight about this. I remember this in the 90s when I was in, when I was in, the, when, when I was in my graduate program. Um, was it Martin Bernal who wrote Black Athena? Who was arguing that the Greeks were black and... And then well, was- I, I, the book the book we had to read in in uh, in, uh, in SUNY Albany because we had assigned books and the book we had to read on Afrocentrism I can't remember the guy's name it was one of these names that was clearly an invented African name which is you know um, I don't know who you know what he where this guy is but but it was it was a silly book it was it, it was about basically the argument that you know Plato was getting all of his ideas from African yeah 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 um, yeah yeah that, that we had that conversation in philosophy as well uh, and okay. i just looked it up the book was called black athena and the argument was essentially that the roots of classical antiquity were actually black um, um, so yeah, yeah, yes. So that happens in English also, I guess. Yeah, that's interest. That's interesting. And it happened earlier. Basically, everything you guys went through in the nineties, we went through in the eighties. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but uh, and uh, I'm laughing. I I should say. I mean, I think there's a great deal of uh, wisdom that one can um, derive from various African cultures. You're just not going to get Plato out of it because he's not. And the claim that he was, or that he was, you know, you know, took a voyage to Nairobi, you know, to become Plato. I mean, that's, that's 
that again, that's a falsification of, of history. That's, that's yeah. 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 You know, it does nobody any good. It, it doesn't do African history any good to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in the English program and all this is sort of churning around you. Um, and I gather it created in, internally somewhat of a, of, a, of a hostile environment for people who really weren't on board for, with this, right? I mean, um, um, did it, it create the, divisions within the program, amongst the faculty, amongst the students? There, there was some tensions on occasion. I don't think it was, you know, because there were still some traditional literature, literacy, uh, literaturists there. There were uh, a number of uh, very interesting poets, uh, the, and there were, there were, like I say, a couple of uh, pragmatist um, composition theorists. So, so you, again, in a, in a graduate degree, you try to find people you can hang with. Yeah, uh, it's, it's only in the courses required courses where things get tense. You know, the the Afrocentrist book was in required course. The, the color purple was an acquired, required course. Uh, and that's where things get tense because that's where you have to confront everybody has to read this book or they have to discuss this issue and and then you're going to have different opinions. Uh, and unfortunately, I, you know, I, the Academy doesn't really handle differences of opinions very well uh, in my experience. Which is a bitter irony, right? I mean, that's sort of a... That, 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 it's, it's what you would not expect Right, yeah. Given the nature of the enterprise, right? Right. You, you would not expect it to be that way. Um, it's interesting, though. It sounds to me like one thing you're saying, though, is that actually things today are much worse because today those divisions lead to people trying to, you know, deprive up, the, you know, their enemies of their livelihoods. I mean, it's gotten, it's, oh, become, is, it's uh, become existential now. You know, you, oh, have, you know, have purges. I mean, uh, was it so? It's what you're describing doesn't sound as bad as that, right? Well, apparently, it got worse. Uh, about five years after I got my doctorate, I bumped into one of my my professors, and he said uh, that, uh, like the, the year after I got my doctorate, the the feminists had finally taken control of the hiring process uh, and had hired younger, even more radical feminists. Uh, and apparently, he, he he reported an instance where the younger radical feminists were chasing the older radical feminists, literally in the hallways, saying, "You're you're a traitor, you're a dinosaur. Why don't you move on?" Wow, um, I mean that's like that's like a direct anticipation of the current turf wars, right? I mean, I mean that's exactly what's happening now. That the newer wave feminists who are all into uh, trans and gender identity activism. Are are basically accusing the traditional feminists, the older generations, of being no better than like Trumpers, right? I mean, it's so. The, yeah, it's interesting. It seems like, as you say, you know, everything that happened in in philosophy is happening in philosophy happened in English first. The English yeah. was sort of the canary in the coal mine. Um, yeah. It sounds to me like if you'd been in ten years later, you would not have made it through. I mean, you would have been perfect. <laughs> would have been canceled, Probably. as they say now, right? <laughs> you mean if, yeah? If I had gotten my attempted my doctorate in around two thousand, yeah, I, I don't think I would have gotten it, uh, and, and I'm not sure I would have. You would have wanted really, it. <laughs> yeah, at that point, you know, one of the interesting things about English, uh, and this actually does have to do with postmodernism um, in general, uh, is that I, 
frankly, the English studies, English literary studies have pretty much no reason to exist anymore. Uh, you, know, you got to say a little more about that. Well, what do you, why, why? English literary studies was there, as, as one of my professors, Don Burt, said, it was there to, to protect the archive, what he called the archive, what most people know as the canon. It's better to think of it as an, as an archive. It's basically, you know, a collection of major language events in English history, uh, major imaginative language events, not speeches, but poems and plays and so on. So they're imaginative, imaginative language events, which means that the people making these texts, you know, have some creative control over the language, over, the, you know, literally over the grammar word choices, word inventions, and so on and so forth. Uh, and these propel the language in its development, in its evolution. Um, and that's absolutely important if you're going to know the history of, of English-speaking nations, uh, to know that how things sounded differently 200 years ago and how ideas were framed differently 200 years ago. Uh, or 400 years ago, or whatever. Um, and, and what happened in the 80s, one of the unfortunate, and it was already beginning, I mean, it actually has its roots in the 1920s, 1930s, <clears throat> when uh, the academic literature critics started asking the question whether Ernest Hemingway was not a living classic. I mean, he was incredibly popular among uh, <laughs> academic literaturists uh, in the 1920s and 30s. And they raised the question, can you have a contemporary classic? The answer, by the way, is no. You cannot. Ontologically impossible. You know, if, you're going, if, if there is a book that is a classic, the author has to be dead. I'm sorry. But, you know, today, we're all always talking about the instant <clears throat> classic. And by the 1980s, late 1980s, uh, English professors were expected to teach contemporary literature courses. And by the end of my graduate program, it wasn't simply that they were expected to teach um, contemporary literature, but they were going to be taught, you know, contemporary literature was going to be taught as if they were classics, which means that they were classics, which means that they were in the uh, canon, and now the canon is all over the place, Right. Uh, includes whatever some professor <clears throat> is writing about, uh, even though it may be um, a short story by some high school student in uh, Nebraska. It's yeah. part of the canon. It's gotten an essay about it in in some journal. Yeah, uh, and so that means the canon is done. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the archive is is not it's fallen apart it's it's people are not keeping records on the archive anymore yeah so let and, me just add, let me let me just you said something at the beginning <clears throat> that i want to sort of I, I want to sort of have to as 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 the end so that we can sort of this thing has the shape that i think it's taken and that is <clears throat> you said that um and i i think you said this in a way that's that implied that this was a mistake right 
<clears throat> that, 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 that there was this impression that it was important to control the academy because the academy, controlling the academy was going to give you direct sort of access to sort of controlling the culture, right? The development of the society and the culture. And you also said to me when we were speaking prior to the recording that you think that um, this mistake is related to why you don't really think that postmodernism comes out of the academy and that postmodernism should be disambiguated from um, post-structuralism. So maybe, maybe we could sort of, as we're sort of winding down, you could sort of complete that tale that you started at the beginning by wrapping, by, by going through these, these connect, these connections. It's, it's very easy. And I actually, uh, I talked to a friend of mine this week about these ideas. And, uh, I said, you know, the, the, the postmodernism or postmodernity that we almost never talk about is the one they actually live in. Um, and hmm. it's immediately, immediately, it's very easy he immediately talks about his experiences with certain professors. And it's very easy to discuss postmodernism or postmodernity within the academy because, you know, the outlines seem to be clear between a certain kind of radical relativism versus a certain objectivity, um, you know, um, whether truth exists or not as a theoretical principle that, you can, that is attainable, so on, how we read science sociologically rather than scientifically, blah, 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 blah. That's not really the interesting post-modernity. That, that's because, you know, that has to do ultimately with whether the academy will survive or how it will survive. Uh, and that is important. Uh, and that has serious social consequences. But the problem is, is that post-modernity is all around us. Uh, we are, you know, I was thinking about this in terms of uh, how modernity developed as an idea. Um, you know, that uh, I think one of the earliest mentions of modernity that, that I can recall is, is actually uh, a, a, a satire by uh, Johnson Swift, the Battle of Books. And the argument there, which took place in the late 1700s, was actually a mirror image of a real argument between literary scholars of the time, because already in late uh, 17th century, they're, they're developing literary scholarship that should be a set alarm bells off because, <laughs> you know, that didn't happen before then. Anyway, so the argument was between those who held that the classics, the ancients, literally the Greeks and the Romans, uh, had greater experience with nature and could, uh, with their language, relate <laughs> better than the moderns who were somehow set apart from direct experience with nature and consequently were developing, you know, languages that that were actually distancing us from experience, right? Interesting. Uh, and the interesting thing is, you know, I asked myself the question, so Swift is using language which is in common play at the time, talking about moderns and ancients. But he's not yet saying that the moderns are modernists, mm. that this is modern era. So I'm asking myself, well, when did that become possible? At what point in history that people you could have walked around 
London or New York City or Paris and say, this is the modern era. You know, and I think it was probably, probably, uh, I have a suspicion it was probably the early uh, 19th century, uh, around the time of the Napoleonic Wars or, or their immediate aftermath, that there was a sense that, you know, a sense had developed largely because of how not only how um, philosophy and science were structured, but how the institutions surrounding philosophy and science were getting structured. That there was a sense that this is what happened before the French Revolution, what happened before the 18th century, what happened before the Enlightenment, uh, that's done. And this is the modern world. And what's the, what's the relationship in your mind between the modern and modernism? I think modernism is a narrative of the progress of the modern. Um, in other words, it's modernism is saying, okay, this is as far as we've come, how can we go farther, right? And that's, uh, not, and primar- that's not primarily academic, you don't think? Um, I don't think it was in the 19th century. Uh, in the 19th century, modernists, you know, the great modernists of the 19th century were the, the uh, railroad uh, men. You know, people who, who put railroads between two coasts in America, they're, they're the modernists. And they knew it. They knew they were doing something new and they were going to, and they were going to profit <laughs> off of it quite a bit. But uh, in other words, the, the modernists of the, of the 19th century were the industrialists. You didn't have to be in the academy for that. In fact, uh, the academy was was extremely conservative. Right, the, you know, right, right. That that's that. But that makes sense. I guess maybe I was thinking of the arts as an extension of the academy, but I guess that's a mistake, right? That's 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 you know when I hear modernist, the first thing I think of is like Kandinsky, right, or something, right? Um, 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 and maybe literature, you know, uh, uh, Faulkner or or Joyce or Kafka, right. Um, in terms of these sort of stylistic, uh, tremendously yeah, innovative would, stylistics, but but it sounds to me like you're telling a different story about these things. Well, no, it's, it's 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 not uh, it's not that far off because those they're not in the academy. No, you're so, right. You're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, yeah. No, I, you know, uh, I think it was. Uh, Oh, I can't remember who it is now. Uh, who wrote the uh, Flowers of Evil? Lord Mall. Flowers of Evil? Yeah. I'm looking it up right now. I, I, I can't remember who it is, but he was, he was actually, was something... You're talking about Baudelaire. Baudelaire. Baudelaire, Baudelaire yeah. And, and he was an art critic, and he would actually paint his hair green and hang out at the coffee shop. Uh, I mean, you know, so so he was not in the academy. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that they were the artists of the time were very aware that they were in the modern period. Uh, I think they saw themselves as as being somehow related to the industrialists that they were mm. bringing in. You mm. know, the, the academy itself was was very uh, actually very old and crusty. No, no, you're absolutely right. And so the post, so what you want to say then is sort of, well, look, the post, the modern was not primarily an academic movement. 
if anything, right. academic modernists were sort of late to the party, right? And similarly, postmodernism is not does is not is doesn't come out of post. Can you tell a similar story where postmodernism doesn't come out of post-structuralism? In other words, where, where, yeah. the, acad- where the academics, where the academic post-structuralists also late to the party, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, actually, the first theorists of postmodernity uh, who did not actually, uh, I did want to bring this up, the first theorists of postmodernity who did not use that term, but is clearly headed in that direction, uh, is Marshall McLuhan. Is understanding media is the first and attempt yeah. to analyze postmodern culture. You know, and that, and that, you could call that academic, but it isn't really, right? I mean, it's not, I mean, it is, because, I mean, someone might say, well, wait a minute, isn't that academic? <laughs> yeah, it is academic, which tells us that, in fact, the culture is already moving towards postmodernity by the time somebody in the academy can even look at it out of the corner of the eye, which is what McLuhan is doing. He's seeing it out of the corner of his eye. He doesn't even have a word for it yet. Because so what, it, year, but it is. what year is McLuhan? Uh, 66. Around, what, I believe. what year is Warhol? Warhol is uh, 64. Okay, so okay, so that 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 tracks then, right? So in other words, because Warhol, if you ask me about, okay, what's in non-academic, what's postmodern, I would say, right. oh, Brillo boxes. Right. right. Right? And that's pre that's pre McLuhan, right? Um, 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 interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, where would you say the post are the earliest non academic signs of the postmodern? Would you say it's Warhol, or would you say it's somewhere else? It's it's um, I think I I have a funny answer to that. Um. Rodin, the uh, sculptor, sculptor, uh, designed a very famous sculpture called the Kiss, um, which is what a, a tall man and a woman, woman sitting on the guy's lap. They're about to kiss. He's got his hand uh, on her knee. Um, what I found out recently is that he actually licensed the duplication of that sculpture in bronze to a foundry in Germany that made, I think, the 17 copies distributed to different museums across the world. Interesting. And they're all labeled Rodin's Kiss, even though they have, they're, they're in bronze, whereas his work was, I believe, in marble. Uh, and, you know, they because of the nature of the bronzing process, the shoulders are angular rather than curved. In other words, you suddenly have this appearance of a legitimate copy that is not original. And were those machine-made or handmade? Machine-made. There there was actually, someone was actually uh, given the right by hand in England, and it was not completed. But the, 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 the duplicates were actually from a foundry. So Rodin anticipated Warhol. In a sense, what? you could yeah. say Rodin anticipated Warhol. Right. I, 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 I think they were on, but I, uh, machines were very much involved in the process. Wow. I had no and, idea. That's fascinating. And um, <sighs> that's, that's really, so that's the 1890s. Post, postmodernism is not 
know, modernity, all these periodizations, Middle Ages, the Renaissance, Reformation, modern, postmodern, the Enlightenment, the Romantic, you know, they, they misguide us into thinking they're, that the, there are these blocks of time and that you enter a block of time and suddenly you're in the modern, and you enter a block of time and suddenly you're in the postmodern. That's, that's not the case. They, obviously, there's profound overlap, um, and there's, there's going to be themes that run concurrent throughout. And actually, come to think of it, I think that it just hit me that's probably the best way to think about history nowadays, that what you're trying to find are themes. You're not trying to find narratives. You will tell a story if you do history, You will because that's the nature of writing history. Uh, but I think the, the, the real issue is themes, because the, the narratives have largely fallen apart. Uh, and, uh, you know. I don't know how familiar you are with Arthur Danto, um, yeah. but his whole end of art, art history thesis sounds a lot like what you're talking about here in a microcosm. His is in a microcosm, and that is in a sense that it's almost fair to say that history for a while was a series of was narrational and sort of one of the one of the things that sort of characterizes postmodernity is that it ceased being narrational um, at a certain point. Um, I'm wondering what what do you think is the main or a main cause of that? Um, is it is it modern communications? Uh, I think that uh, modern communications uh, has a lot to do with it. Uh, yeah, um... I think there's a number of things going on, uh, but, uh, because I think that is a major part of it. Uh, you know, the world of YouTube, for instance. So we just mentioned Marshall McLuhan, right, and his understanding of how television was going to be the uh, cool medium that people could participate in, which, you know, for 30 years looked stupid. You had three major broadcasting networks, right? You, you couldn't talk to them. Now, of course, on the other hand, we have YouTube. And everybody is participating in yeah. television, right? Uh, so he was he, he, he was pretty much on money. The difference, the problem is, is that that actually doesn't bring us any closer. Uh, because as it turns out, you can put anything on YouTube. There's no, there's no uh, way to verify uh, what is interest. Not only no way to verify what is true or not often, but also there's no way to verify what's interesting or not. You click on it and say, oh, well, this looks like it might be interesting. All right, well, it's not interesting to me, but it might be interesting to my friends. I better watch this. You don't know. And your friends are all on YouTube, too. So eventually the, the, the point is that the, the whole sense of what becomes important uh, dissolves uh, or is left unresolved, let's put it that way. And isn't there just an inherently atomizing and fracturing effect of just the overwhelming plenitude that comes with communications that now occur in sort of virtual space. Yeah. <clears throat> um, um, I mean, Susan Sontag worried about that a lot. I think she was also much more prophetic than people gave her credit for. Um, I'm just finding some of her landmark pieces more and more relevant um, today. Um, 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 and as, as McLuhan 
as as McLuhan seems to be getting more and more relevant today. So, 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 how would you then describe at this point? And maybe we'll finish on this since we're going uh, over the hour. Um, how would you describe at this point the relationship between postmodernity? in the world and post-modernity in the academy? I mean, is post-modernity in the academy still essentially post-structuralist or has it to, has it moved beyond that to something else? Uh, I think that in terms of the academy, you always have to separate, you know, like the radical sociologists of science and say science is all power and politics and so on. I have to separate that kind of postmodernism from people who are analyzing postmodernity. And um, you know, my three favorites when I was in my graduate uh, uh, program were uh, Leotard, who I think is a brilliant philosopher, Baudrillard, who's entertaining uh, sociologist, and uh, uh, who is very whose uh, critique of cynical reasoning is a meditation on how this kind of begins actually in the 30s. Who was the last one? Could you say the name again? Peter Sloterdijk. Oh, okay. Uh, The reason was uh, the book that I read at the time. Uh, And, you know, there's also the way that Danto is interesting. I just read uh, um, Bernard Williams' Truth and Truthfulness, which I think is wrestling with this issue, uh, especially in the second half where he deals quite explicitly with the problems of history, the, the need to have some truthfulness in, in historical narrative, even when the narrative is, is body. Um, so uh, we have to separate. There are academics who analyze postmodern that we need actually to pay attention to and not lump all together as uh, you know, all these relativists. You know, the, the, the postmodern is here. Postmodern is YouTube. The postmodern is the way people dress these days. You know, there's no... The postmodern is... You know, I brought this up on a number of comments because you had written an, uh, an interesting article at uh, Electric Agora about uh, Kitsch and the liberal state. How about Kitsch, yeah, 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 yeah. The liberal state. And, and Kitsch is, you know... Part of what's going, part of what happens in post-modernity is that kitsch replaces culture, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it, culture becomes kitsch, right? In a sense, I mean, it, it's the one of the thing, legacies of post-modernity is sort of the kitschification of almost everything, right? Um, 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 uh, which I lamented, but I guess you're, you're sort of saying that that's just unavoidable, right? I mean, it is. It, well, you know, we're uh, the older you are, I think the more nostalgic one is about when things were modern. Yeah, fair um, enough. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, modernism had uh, an understanding that somehow you could get into the same narrative as other people. Um, I was going to mention uh, as an example of that, uh, that uh, uh, a book called Giants in the Earth by a uh, uh, um, Rolvig, a Norwegian-American. And it's about a a Norwegian family that immigrates to America. And the idea when this is in the 1880s, and the idea is that the family has is that they're going to make their money because America's a rich land and, you know, farm, the 
hundreds of acres eventually. And once they make their money, they're going to go back to Norway. Uh, and, of course, what happens is that uh, they're in South Dakota and they have forgotten to take into account South Dakota weather, and so they go through some miserable periods. Uh, and ultimately, they realize that they, they ain't going back to Norway. Right. And initially, when they think they're going back to Norway, they try to keep their kids away from American kids, non-Norwegian kids, you know, train them in the Norwegian tradition, so on and so forth. But when they realize that they're not going to go back to Norway, they send them to school and say, learn to be an American, right? And that's, uh, uh, for me, that is paradigmatic of the immigrant experience, uh, certainly for it was for my both my grandparents' families. My parents as uh, well, yeah. Yeah, and and that's, that's modernity. We are somehow all going to get on the same page. In post-modernity, we are not, that's not going to happen. We're not always on the same page. We're not ever going to get on the same page with some people. Um, and uh, it's easy to be nostalgic for that modernist moment, consequently, that because the modernist hope that we were all going to tell the same story or chapters in, in shared stories. Uh, whereas now... Uh, you look at some people, you have no idea where they're coming from or what they're, what they're thinking or what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, the fra- it seems to me that that sort of fragmentation is an inevitable outcome of <clears throat> uh, media communications occurring in a virtual space. Um, 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 and, um, and I've talked at the Electric Gregor and other places about just at the level of popular culture, the sort of the socially disintegrating effects of their of it no longer being the case that there's anything like 150 million people in the country watching the last episode of MASH, right? I mean, there's just no, it's, everything is too, is too broken up. And I guess the last thing I want to ask you, because it just occurred to me, but the, this, this is so interesting, um, um, this idea of thinking of, of the modern as representing the last point at which we could, credibly think of ourselves as part of an ongoing narrative and the postmodern is that of sort of being the, the fundamental fragmentation or disintegration of the narratives. Um, I wonder if this provides an entirely different lens and in some ways a very apolitical lens to understanding the current populist movements. Um, you know, there is a kind of, to me, reminds me of, and, and they're even calling it kind of like a new nationalism, right? And I'm wondering whether, to me, there's something almost uh, romantic about it. Um, in that I'm wondering whether we underestimated just how disturbing the fragmentation of narrative was going to be to so, to, to so many people and that they were going to do anything they could to try to get us back on a narrative, right? Um, 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 do you think that, that, that there's anything to that or do you think that the, the current political po- populist waves across the country have to be explained in a much more local contingent sort of way? No, well, here, here's the problem, though, because we have to remember that this fragmentation <clears throat> isn't simply coming out of uh, the arts. Uh, it, it, uh, you know, it comes out of a number of different places. What we have to really look at is this distribution. And what I mean by that is that this fragmentation sells. You know, the, the fragmentation creates markets 
Uh, and uh, what I'm saying is that, you know, look at an aspect of right-wing nationalism, which is, of course, guns rights. Uh, the gun industry makes an awful lot of money, and so does the NRA. Uh, so, so the fragmentation is something that actually has a profit motive involved in it. Uh, and, uh, you know, advertisers love it. They just love it. They, they get to advertise to different populations in different ways. Same old crap. Uh, you know, the, sell the same old crap to different people for, in different ways. That was recognizable back in the, the 60s. They finally realized that if they slapped paisley and flowers on something, <laughs> they could sell, you know, uh, uh, they could sell a notebook to a hippie, and if they took off the paisley and flowers and had uh, uh, just a regular uh, black and white binding, you know, they could sell it to a conservative. You know, uh, see what I'm saying? I mean, it yeah. sells, right? It sells. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so it sounds to me like it's almost as if you know, capitalism is the only thing that is the only sort of force that is perfectly happy for the narratives to be over and to have them be fragmented and people sort of spread out all across the all across the the landscape. And I guess there is a sense in which the yearnings of those who are falling for these sort of modern nationalist movements is is manipulative, right? Um, uh, they're being manipulated. Um, 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 but I do, I do think that maybe we underestimate how discomfort, un, how uncomfortable <clears throat> living in a postmodern environment is for a lot of people, right? It, I think it's, it's, and uh, I think that yeah. that's a fair discomfort. I think it's fair. I'm just, I, I find it uncomfortable, unappealing. I'm just not tempted by romantic. I'm just not tempted by romantic fantasies to the extent to which maybe other people are. Um, but I, I, I share the discomfort. Um, um, and you think maybe we underestimate a little bit and underappreciate that the discomfort is. No, the discomfort, the discomfort is real. I, I, um, I think we are in a postmodern moment. Uh, I don't know where that's going to come about. Uh, I also am defensive of postmodern analysts uh, who tend to get lumped into the relativists you know, uh, without uh, justification. Um, yeah, I like that distinction you made within the academy between the people who are simply trying to understand what's happening and what's happening is postmodern. Right. And the exactly. people who are kind of almost uh, activists for increasing postmodernism, right? I mean, um, 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 I think that's a very important distinction. And when I defend this, I, I say, you know, I'm not happy with this situation. Just because I say this is the postmodern moment doesn't mean I'm saying, hey, this is the postmodern moment. Right. I'm not and I'm saying this is the postmodern moment, but we do. Uh, how do we live with it? What comes next, if anything? And I'm not sure that, I did want to say one last thing. Uh, yeah, no, um, please go ahead. Uh, I think this is really important. Postmodernism is called, I think it's the first time in history when a major historical moment is a post-something. Nobody's thought of the Enlightenment as post-Christian. You know, it was just the Enlightenment. Um, and I think the reason why is, uh, my fear is that I look around not only in literature, 
uh, philosophy, uh, various humanities and social sciences, but also in, even in the hard sciences. I wonder if, if, if the West is not at this point uh, exhausted intellectually. Uh, so the, the question, in other words, I'm not sure that we can, when art, when, uh, I'm sorry, when Danto talks about the end of heart uh, and relates it to Hegel's theory of the end of history, the end of history does not, for Hegel, the end of history means you arrive at the blessed point where you, all the good stuff in history comes together and you don't have to have history anymore because you're living in this, you know, the ideal state. Uh, actually, what happens, I think, is that the, uh, the end of a historical narrative is a point of exhaustion where it's no longer possible to come up with a workable new theory, a uh, new idea, new innovation. And so what needs to happen is that new narratives need new narr- new narrative histories need to arise from emerging yeah, there, from emerging there, societies. Yeah, there has to be some sense of uh, you know otherwise yeah there has to be some sense that something else will happen so that we can get beyond postmodernity and not into something called post-post-modernity, which was a theory that somebody came up with 10 years ago. It's ridiculous. You know, that, that's not what we need. We need to actually, because, you know, we won't see it when it happens, which is interesting. The same way that we didn't see post-modernity happen with Andy Warhol uh, or Marsha McLuhan. Uh, and the modernists didn't see, you know, didn't see that the battle of the books that Swift was writing about they didn't see that that was actually going to somehow determine the nomenclature for the age that they were going to live in. We're not going to see the next era happening. Uh, we're not going to be able to call it what it is. Um, we don't know yet what the signs of it is. Uh, but, yeah, it has to be something, uh, some innovation that, that uh, heals a lot of, I, I don't I don't know exactly. But I don't think it can come out of us. I mean, it seems to me that this is going to come out of the countries that are out of the societies that are now industrializing, right? I mean, that, that, and, and, and in other words, I don't think there can be both conceptually and as a matter of just looking around, I don't think there is anything post postmodern, right? I mean, in a sense, that's the end, right? Yeah. Um, um, and I think that the only thing that sort of, you know, if you think about it, there's no intrinsic reason to think that a civilization can have has an endless life, right? I mean, um, 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 and I mean purely, I mean in terms of its intellectual development, right? And its and its cultural development. I, I mean, a thousand years may be about all you get, right? Or, or, or fifty, you know. In, in other words, um, and I think that maybe to a certain extent, it's capitalism that keeps it unnaturally alive for much longer than it should, right? I mean, another because capitalism is so adept and adroit at absorbing whatever cultural development occurs, right? Um, 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 you know, everything except for capitalism, it gets destroyed by the, this, this new frag, this fragmentation, right? Um, and in that sense, I almost wonder where the sort of capitalism, what it does when a, when a civilization reaches its end is it sort of turns, it turns into a kind of a zombie, right? Um, um, that just sort of keeps walking around, but I mean, it's, it's, it's empty, right? I mean, and you know, I could make some, I could claim some interesting connection to the fascination in the West with zombie, uh, narratives, right? With, with zombie films and zombie games and stuff. Um, 
because there is a sort of sense that we're all still walking around, but we died a long time ago. And, um, um, and that, that constant sense that, you know, the best days are in the past. And I mean, even, even my daughter's generation, I mean, when I was 16 years old, I never for one second thought, oh gosh, it was better to be young in 1950, right? <laughs> um, but pretty much my entire daughter's generation thinks, you know, they, they, they lament the fact that they weren't teens when I was, right? And um, 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 so I just, I wonder, you know, A, is this simply the end of, a, of, of, does the end of the narrative mean really the end of the civilization? And what has to happen then is that new narratives have to be created by up and coming civilizations. And secondly, do you think that capitalism kind of unnaturally extends the life of these things? Um, the kind of capitalism we have now is, you know, in, investment capital. Finance capitalism is is actually historically new, so we're going to have to watch and see. What we don't know where it's going to go. Is what? Yeah, yeah. As far as the first question is concerned, you know, the, the, the having been raised in at the end of a modernist culture and having participated in that narrative, um, we're conditioned, I think, somehow to think of you know civilization as an ongoing work work in progress. We forget that if we look over the, the course of civilizations across the world, a lot of them just went into stagnation yeah. for centuries. They did nothing new. No innovation. No new poetry. No new buildings. They just, they just went to work, went home, went to sleep. That was it. You know, and if they were fortunate, meaning if there was no natural crisis, like I said, this could go on for centuries. Yeah. And this, you know, Right now, the world is in up, uh, upheaval in a number of ways, and we have a real problem uh, in terms of how the West is going to deal with Islam. Uh, and I'm not an Islamophobe, but I don't mean that. What I mean is that Islamic states, only three Islamic states, as far as I know, ever had to go through modernity. Uh, Turkey, uh, Iran, and Egypt. No other Islamic state has gone through modernity, and you can see from those three examples of the countries that did, you know, that it's possible to regress uh, in some ways. So the problem there is that a lot of what we talk about, even talking about here in terms of what is modernism, what is postmodernism, all assume the Enlightenment, right? An Enlightenment that hasn't happened in Islam. Uh, that means that you know, coming to cultural understandings between East and West, right now have only occurred after the colonial area, have only occurred because of capitalism. It's only money that allows a conversation between, say, Saudi Arabia and, and France, um, or, or the United States, as we know. Yeah. So that's, so it's not sure right now how long we can remain stagnant, but that we are stagnant, I believe. I, I firmly believe that we have, you know, that we were intellectually exhausted in the West and we have reached a moment of stagnation. And stagnation just goes on. You know, it's just, it, it isn't that you can't write books. You now, let's make this clear about postmodernity it, and post art, you know, going back to Danto. 
or even post politics. Um, you know, it's not that you can't do things. You can't do art. You can't write books. You can't do age in politics. That's not what it's about. You can do all these things. You're just not going to innovate. There's not really going to be anything new that's going to be interesting and useful right. and progressive. You can make the stuff, but it simply isn't going to play the role that it, that such things used to play. I mean, in, in other words, because it's no longer part of a single story, and there's no longer essentially a single audience. It's, it's literally millions of audiences broken up into tiny pieces. And I guess really the question that we just don't know the answer to is whether civilizations can, in a sense, completely renew from a postmodern period, from an extended period of, of, of stagnation, can sort of be reborn like the phoenix, or whether basically each civilization gets one run at it. And so the, the next great narratives are going to come out of the, the civilizations that are currently developing, right? Um, so that's uh, sub-Saharan Africa, India, um, um, China, which huge portions of it are completely, you know, under, undeveloped, um, 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 uh, you know, compare the coastal cities to the hinterland. Um, and that, you know, the West is simply is, is, is not going to go, we're not going to go around again, right? I mean, you get to go around once and we had a very long run and we're now kind of exhausted and it's really only just money that's keeping it afloat. Um, but as soon as these hungrier, newer, younger developing civilizations really come into their own and their own narratives really get started, I'm assuming the capital is just going to flow over there, right? Um, 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 uh, uh, is what it seems like to me. And, and with the declining birth rates in the West and all of that, it does seem like there is a kind of a, you get a single, you get a single narrational arc. And once the postmodern hits, you're kind of done. And then it's just a matter of how long you can stay in the done state. <laughs> how long you can keep walking around after you're dead, right? Um, that, that is possible. I mean, you, you need you would need uh, some sort of major infusion. I don't know that you can innovate within a stagnant culture. That I don't think is possible. Uh, you can get innovation from without. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Chinese culture was stagnant for a long time at one point, and then suddenly the Buddhists came in and Chinese philosophy just ramped up again because suddenly they had to account for something new. Yeah. So, you you know, and maybe that's what will happen. Maybe these uh, younger cultures that you're talking about will introduce some new idea and we'll get all excited about it here. I don't know. I, yeah. that's I, actually, you know, that's actually a good argument for maximally porous immigration Especially from developing nations, especially from developing nations, because what you could say is, look, what's going to inject new life into the American civilization is is people from South America, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's what's going to inject new life. It's not going to be us, right? Um, um, and I think that you can make a case. I, mean, I, I tend towards pretty uh, open immigration myself for, for precisely this reason, despite the fact that I, I understand that I, I do think there's a serious problem. Um, uh, you know, some of the worst manifestations of our politics come out of the sort of dis the dislocation of the lower and lower middle parts of the economic ladder. Um, the people basically who are now, you know, in this, the people voting for Trump from these places that are sort of deindustrialized. And, yeah. and I, but, but, you know, I do think that there is a strong case to be made that if you want this, a civilization like this that, that is at the end of its rope to renew, it's going to have to come from an injection of, of, of people from places that have not yet been through the narrative, right? Um, um, and um, it'll be interesting to see how that all goes. Um, 
Um, are you hopeful or, or, I mean, I know you're not generally temperamentally hopeful, but intellectually, do you, do you think the Western civilization will renew or do you think eventually this will just run out and, and all the action is going to be happening some, in other places, so to speak? I guess if you don't want to, I'm just, uh, you know, I just, I, I, because it's, the America is, we'll have to see if we can survive Donald Trump, first of all. <laughs> We're not even sure we'll do that. Um, as far as Europe is concerned, it has, obviously, its own remarkable problems right now. Um, intellectually, uh, I think we're going to have to find some way to rethink the function of science in society. Uh, because science is central, it was central to the modernist narrative. Um, science, I think, is at this point also pretty much exhausted. I mean, string theory is the end of physics. <laughs> you know, if, if, if physics has a history, string theory is the end of it. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so we'll have to rethink the nature, how science relates to the society around us. We long thought it had its best use was that it produced technology. Technology does not depend on science anymore. Technological engineers don't need science anymore. Uh, um, so, I, but I think science, as an intellectual pursuit, I think is is can possibly could be renewed if it rethinks how it relates to the society around it. Um, so we'll have to see. I mean. Uh, 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 likely, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's hard to say because I was actually, 10 years ago, if you asked me that question, I'd say, you know, is, this is going to be the Chinese century. Xi Jinping has taken enormous back steps, and I don't know if that's true anymore. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're having problems. That, yeah. Uh, um, What's going on in Hong Kong right now is this, it's unfolding right in front of us. I mean, it's, it's, that, that could cool. be, in my view, the biggest mistake he will have made. And in hindsight, that, that may turn out to have been what blew it right, right for them. Um, but we'll have to see. Um, I don't know why, for some reason, I think, I, I don't know. I think that the futures, that, that these futures are going to come out of Latin America and out of India, but I, 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 I couldn't give you a good argument. It's sort of instinctive. Um, 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 but um, anyway, I, this is really incredibly interesting and i want to thank you so much for um you're the only sort of person i could have this sort of conversation with just because of the vast territory it covers and the fact that you're, you 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 and i share one common thing i think and that is a, a very broad array of interests um and um and so i i really want to thank you john and um and i look forward to seeing you uh seeing you here again sometime soon Okay, I really enjoyed this conversation. This was fun. It was really fun. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, take care. Have a good night. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.